HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greenhorns, this is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. Today, coming to you from the freshly rained upon hills of Southern California, joined by Effie and Todd, who are, I think, in Oakland. Hello, welcome to the show. Hello there. Severin. Are you guys in the same room sharing one phone? No, we're not. No, we are not. Oh, wow, we're getting sophisticated. Yeah. <laughs> so Effie and Todd are both part of the Occupy the Farm project and the Occupy the Farm film, and super exciting to have them on the show and to learn more and spread the news to all of you about the budding land occupation movement in the United States. I wonder if we could start with Effie, um, just give us a brief summary of what's going on and what has been going on, and then maybe contextualize it. Um, in the kind of international uh, way. Sure, sure. Thanks, Severin, for having us on and for asking those questions. Um, so the, the struggle for the Gill Tract is, um, is a story that has a lot of different applications, like you alluded to, um, and it definitely invites um, the food justice movement of the United States to think about that larger global context of, um, of really... Um, how how do we talk about food justice without talking about land? And this is this is something that the the folks in the global south have have been looking at for a long time. Um, and the the Gill Tract is um, a 20 acre historic farm um, that's just north of Berkeley that has belonged to the University of California um, since the early 1920s um, and started out as a as 100 acre um, prime piece of farmland. Um, 
and was bought by the university in order to do agricultural research. And um, as uh, research, research agendas shifted over the next hundred years, um, more and more of that land was used for um, things other than agricultural research. Um, it was developed into housing, it was developed into shopping, um, and much of the research that was did remain there was um, for research that was for a patent-producing agenda, so genetic research um, and things of that nature. Um, so the, the struggle for the Guild Tract um, is, is one is a story of land. Um, it's a story of, of our public institutions, um, and it's a, a story of, of what a community can do um, to kind of push back in an atmosphere where those resources, those public resources, are increasingly not being used um, for a public uh, agenda, public serving agenda. Um, is that kind of the, kind of the general broad background you were looking for? So, okay, so we got a little history about the Guild Track and the changing research agendas. And um, bring us up to date with your actions so far. Um, and maybe, Todd, do you want to introduce your document documentary process? When did you get involved with the Guild Track, and what have you been, what have you been, what were you filming? Sure. Um, I had done some research about urban farmers in Oakland, um, and had thought had been trying to propose it as a um, something to do on television, and that got nowhere. And during the um, the occupation, the, the Occupy movement of 2011, I was out in front of uh, Oakland City Hall and recognized some of the urban farmers I had met doing research from Oakland and uh, put one and one together and realized that at some point the Occupy movement would join the urban farming movement and there would be an occupation and that would make a great story. Um, so I just uh, bided my time and six months later um, Effie and and her uh, organization and friends uh, occupied the Guild Track. I got news of it and uh, sent some friends over right away, and then came up there and, and uh, uh, with a camera and, and uh, joined the occupation with a camera and followed the story for the next uh, two and a half years. And the result was a um, was a, a, a hour and a half feature documentary that was played in theaters all across the United States. So, uh, I've seen the film, it's super awesome, and it's also really cool, like, uh, little interludes. Um, can you just give a little bit of a sense of what's on the screen? Like, what do people sure. see? I mean, sure. it's pretty, yeah, it's no, pretty it, it, unique. It starts... There's a lot of farm films, but there's not a lot of films about land occupation. You want to talk about no, the vibe? What sets this film apart is that, is that it's a story about uh, real people fighting for one piece of land and what the fate of this land is going to be. Is this land going to be, is this public land going to remain in the public sphere for public research or is it going to get privatized for, uh, you know, real estate development purposes? That was the essential question on, on day one of the occupation. Uh, and. Uh, other cameras, not mine. Some activist, uh, a guy named Peter from San Francisco, was there with uh, with the with the occupiers, and and he recorded 200 people walking, you know, walking through the pad, breaking through the padlock, walking out of this land with wheelbarrows, tools, 
15,000 seedlings and they planted two acres. They, they cleared a couple of acres and, and planted a full acre of crops on their very first day um, before anyone, even before the authorities, you know, even walked onto the place. So it was a very unique action and it had a lot of hope and it had a lot of people involved in it. And uh, so it was, uh, it was a very lively story to follow and, and the people on all sides of the story that are in the film um, were really passionate about the issue and, um, and, and while the, it, so it, it is both an important issue in, in the real world and because we were there just at the right time to capture it, it, it makes a really great story on screen as well. So, Effie, do you want to give us an update? Um, the land was occupied and farmed. Um, there's a series of sagas with police occupation, negotiation with researchers, um, uh, people being arrested, you know, just like everything that goes down went down. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of an update as to um, what's going on right now with the guilt, with the guilt track? And, um, yeah. yeah. Thanks, definitely. Um, yeah, so spoiler alert for the documentary. Um, the, the, the struggle for the land um, actually created um, a chain of events that meant that a good portion, about half of those 20 acres, um, were transferred back into the hands of the College of Natural Resources that was taken off of the block um, for development, and that meant um, that we had an opportunity, the college had an opportunity, and the community had an opportunity to work together to create a collaborative project, which we have been doing now for over two years, um, creating 20,000 pounds of, of organic pr produce in the first year without a crop plan or <laughs> um, a lot of um, four, four organizations, just kind of communities coming together and figuring it out um, along with some really awesome resources. Well, didn't you even not have water when you were growing those vegetables? Like you had to carry all the water over the fence, right? Yeah. Well, that was that was these, those initial weeks when we had an, an actual occupation happening there, um, and then what happened since then was that um, you know we kept on we kept on accessing the land. You know, eventually it meant it wasn't about the occupation; it was about the access. It was about continued stewardship of that land, which we kept on um, persisting in even after those initial weeks of occupation. And so eventually the, the College of Natural Resources said, well, hey, let's, let's work together on this. Um, let's create a project. And so now we're, we're stewarding a project um, and will be for at least another six years. Um, I hope to see it go on forever um, where we've got educational programming and or, um, some research and some um, production that benefits the community directly. Um, we also have a, an ongoing um, campaign for the land that for the 10 more southern acres of the of the total 20 acres of the Gill Tract, which is in danger of development still um, for a shopping and housing complex. And so we're encouraging um, a boycott of one of the anchor tenants of that development, which is Sprouts Farmer's Market. For those who've been there, it's not a farmer's market. It's actually a completely greenwashed version. Um, it's a big box store, so I encourage anyone, even if you don't care about the Gill Track struggle, to boycott that store because they are undercutting real farmers and real farmers markets. Um, so, yeah, our struggle continues through, the, through the, that campaign and also through direct action on the land. Um, 
we've also it's also been really beautiful to see the involvement of um, the Ohlone community, which is the indigenous community in the Bay Area. Um, there's a group called the Indigenous Land Access Committee that has um, become involved um, with bringing the the Ohlone voice and the indigenous voice to the Gill Tract, which I think is really important. Um, not only because I want to see our public institutions like the University of California involved in conversations around reparations and healing um, from the genocide of um, indigenous people in this country, but also because I want to see those universities prioritizing some of those life ways, some of that knowledge, um, those regenerative practices um, that revolved in place, were site-specific, and therefore um, are often very appropriate for a specific location. Um, and if we're trying to figure out how to combat a food system being ravaged by monoculture, both socially and agriculturally, we have a lot to learn from indigenous people. So that's um, some of the exciting news there on the, um, the two and a half acres um, that we saved through the occupation. So one of the things that we know about land-grant universities is that land-grant universities were granted land in order to uh, fulfill their mandate in supporting agricultural and mechanical training, so engineering and agriculture, uh, for the new settlers, and that that land that they were granted obviously was land that belonged to someone else or to other communities. So the sale of public lands um, is, you know, inherent in the um, land-grant university system, and many land-grant university systems have been selling their lands, their research lands, their extension station lands. Um, in the past decade, there's been a real decline in the acreage available for public research, public breeding. Um, there's been an increase in the privatization of these public these breeding programs um, to the detriment of um, traditional breeds and open, you know, essentially the open source research information that the public deserves. The University of Kentucky has sold off most of its uh, farmland. It's now a strip as you come into Lexington. Um, and there's other examples that my brain is not accessing in this moment. But do you want to talk a little bit about the community response and um, the kind of indignation or, or another way of saying that would be what is the vision that the community held for what this land should be? Because I think there's a pretty strong public consensus about what public lands should do um, that doesn't necessarily always align with what the university administrators think, but, um, you know, did you find a pretty clear awareness within the public of what they thought the land should be used for? And how did you go about that? Yeah, well, as, as is captured really beautifully in the film, um, you know, when this when our group, Occupy the Farm, Grassroots Direct Action Group, got involved, it was, um, it was part of a much larger struggle that had been going on for decades um, by people in, in the community around the farm that had for over 20 years been asking for that land to be protected and to be used for um, agricultural research and education. Um, so the, I heard about it as a student at, at the University of California when I studied agroecology with Miguel Altieri, who basically stood in front of his class and said, hey, you students, what are you going to do about this? You know, this, this had been a place where really important sustainable agricultural research had been done for decades. And um, it was on the, on the brink of being paved. Um, 
so we, um, we really benefited and stood on the shoulders of these communities that had said, hey, we know what we want here. You know, th- this, there had been proposals, like I said, that Alice Waters had been involved in, that multiple stakeholders from the community had been involved in, um, that said, we want to see this be a place where children can come and learn about agriculture. It's in the middle of the city. This spot is 20 acres of prime agricultural land in the San Francisco Bay. Which Todd, do you want to talk about the, the community's voice that you heard in the film? Yeah, it was really interesting because the, the university, you know, it operates under a charter signed by Abraham Lincoln that says that they have to teach farming. And this piece of land was their last farm, and they were going to pave it over with condos and a shopping center. So the, the community, many members of the community have been concerned about this land for years. And when Effie and the other farmers, you know, cut the padlock off and walked in and started planting vegetables, it was like this big invitation for people to, you know, families, kids, you know, whomever to, to, uh, to, to walk onto the land. And while not everyone loved them, um, they got a very positive response and a huge outpouring of support from, from the neighbors. And this confounded the university. Um, and so the amount of concern and community support and, and activity from people who you know, who were who always, you know, w- curious about the land and worried about the land kind of, uh, you know, undid their plans. And there was, at no point during the occupation was it a sure deal that they were going to win. In fact, everyone was saying, people who, quote-unquote, knew the deal, said, oh, yeah, this is a foregone, this is a done deal. These, these people are never going to win. It's, it's nice that they're trying this, but they're not going to be victorious. But, in fact, you know, the, the community outpouring embarrassed the university and the real estate deal collapsed and it was really because of the community's support of this very creative direct action that they were able to win so if there hadn't been a sort of a public concern and a public you know a pretty high level of public support i don't think they would have you know been you know near as successful uh, because it was it was by no means a, uh, an assured outcome, and uh, uh, the the public nature of this land, people were really upset that the university would essentially privatize uh, their last farm when their charter says they're supposed to teach farming. So again, the public and the public land and the the, the public discourse about how land is used. Uh, can happen nicely in the public when there's a press and there's a stunt and there's a dialogue and it's university land. It's harder in the private sector, the conversations about stewardship and the decisions that are being made across the country by thousands of individuals on their private property are, you know, much more sacrosanct in our country as a result of our, our particular history of settlement. Um, and the way that our enclo- the enclosure of our of our land was related to the building of our nation and the founding of our democracy and a whole bunch of really awesome rhetoric that many of us believe very strongly in, and yet the contestation over this public land is a really powerful window to a larger discourse about land reform, who has access to land, under what terms, uh, at what cost. And, and 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 under what, what governance structure? And that's a conversation that that that's a, and that contestation that's going on 
um, in many other locations. And I know Effie, as a result of this occupation in, in Oakland or in rather in um, Albany, uh, is that right, Albany? Yeah. Yeah. That you were able to go and visit with the MST in Brazil. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit of your experience there and, um, again, situating this this particular kind of opening for dialogue. Um, yeah. What does it mean you. to you? Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, so, for sure, this this sort of reflection of um, what's happening in the in the global south, and particularly with organizations like the MST, the Landless Workers Movement of Brazil, um, was hugely inspirational to our work at the Guild Tract in using the tactic of occupation, um, where other uh, efforts, community efforts, had failed. Um, so the MST, um, they have for decades now been using occupations to reclaim land for displaced people, for working people, for people aspiring to be farmers, um, and uh, doing up to about a five-year occupation, which by no means is is easy. It is not necessarily supported by um, an overwhelming majority of the local community or um, by Brazilians at large. Um, This is a social movement. Um, something that has this this larger um, political message as well as trying to meet the material needs of the people that are participating. Um, so this is, they are, you know, the MST is supported by um, parts of their constitution that say that land must be used for a social function. And so if land is sitting fallow or they've even started to develop it further where they're going into university-owned property they're going into fields owned by Monsanto. They're reclaiming those spaces as well. Um, they started out as just follow land that they were reclaiming, but at this point, they're um, they're really asking the public and asking the law to examine this this definition of social function um, and reclaiming land for those purposes that have been used by a huge monocultures international agribusiness. So. Um, visiting with the MST and seeing how they're working um, was was happened after, as you said, after we had our initial occupation. We had, with our initial occupation, we had exchanges, letters, letter exchanges with folks within the MST that um, you know gave us huge messages of solidarity and, and encouragement. And then afterwards, um, what I saw there was that it is not just a rural movement. It's very much something that is in the urban areas as well. Um, it's something that's connected to worker struggles. It's something that's connected to um, establishing community centers, trying to build um, housing that folks can afford. And it kind of centers around this identity of um, of a person, of a worker. Talk into the microphone, Effie. Sorry. How's that? <laughs> um, it's It's... The, the MST, as I said, um, works for material benefits, but also um, is huge is hugely focused on political education and identity. Identity as a worker, identity as someone who um, deserves land, who can fight for land, um, and so that's something that I hope that people who are um, excited about food, excited about um, farming. Um, can explore these these larger tactics that we're seeing around the world 
um, if they're if they're having uh, difficulty, <laughs> which most of us are, it's the biggest question: How do we get land um, that they can perhaps look to community um, building community and finding land that is unused um, that they might use to to grow food for the benefit of the community? And this is something that is is really tricky. Can get really tricky for folks um, in communities that they may not necessarily be a part of for a long time, have been a part of for a long time. Um, so specifically in Oakland, we see, um, you know, white folks, um, white, white folks with a, a lot of class privilege or some degree of um, upward mobility going into communities where they can reclaim land that they can really only have the privilege of doing that because these are communities that um, have kind of been neglected by the city, um, by uh, city structures and investment there, um, and and trying to claim space. And I think it's really important for people to think about who is living here, who is being displaced. If I'm if I'm coming in here to create those networks of accountability, conversation, of deep connection, um, before we are taking space. So we don't have very many more minutes to talk, um, but I want to just point to some of the places where um, this kind of dialogue about land rights, land access, land reform, land occupation um, is going on. We have a land news blog on the Agrarian Trust, agrariantrust.org. Um, there's an amazing, there's an amazing set of thinkers, uh, although they are not getting the headlines. You know, it's not as popular as pasta, but land rights are a powerful, um, a powerful discourse that's been going for quite a long time um, in this, you know, all around the world. And the questions of political economy, of, of justice, that are raised by uh, these, these, um, well, by the policies and structures and ownership regimes that cause about 30% of our food to be grown on about 70% of the land, um, whereas about seven, which is the industrial ag system, and then about 70% of our food globally grown on about 30% of the land, um, which is those farms that are still in what could be considered a more peasant-based, subsistence, diversified, small family farm operation context. So this confrontation between agribusiness, large-scale monoculture export, global exchange, and the more regional, local, uh, peasant economies has been, a, has been a standoff for years and for, decades, for, gener- for centuries. Um, these issues have arisen and uh, continue to arise as we look forward at the structures of our farm policy, the $60 billion dollars uh, we've spent from taxpayer money subsidizing the largest 4% in the last 10 years of agribusiness operators with our um, subsidized crop insurance. You know, what are we as a society interested to see on the land that is ours? Um, this, is a, this is too much to go into right now, but I would really love to just bookmark the fact that we're going to keep talking about this this is a this is a area where um, there is not a broad consensus, and I think there's a growing sense that our interests, our health, our environmental, our social, 
and our um, fiduciary best interests are not um, being met uh, and that we have a lot of re-examining to do. So um, another really great place to just point towards is a magazine called The Land, which is published out of England, which Greenhorns distributes. Uh, it's a quarterly magazine on land, land rights issues, um, major focus on the U.K., um, where they've had a lively debate ever since the enclosure of the commons, um, but news from all around the world. Uh, any final thoughts, Todd, about where to find the movie? How, if people want to organize a screening of this movie, can they get, yes. can they get access? Uh, anyone, and um, it seems like it would be a great thing for people to have Grange halls or community halls or uh, schools and colleges and libraries with budgets or librarians to meet and convince. What should they do, Todd? They can send an email to us at occupythefarmfilm at gmail.com. That's occupythefarmfilm at gmail.com. That's all run together. And they can also go to our website, occupythefarmfilm.com. Um, the film can be, um, uh, individuals can watch the film on iTunes, Amazon, and that sort of platform. Uh, but then please get in touch with us. We love doing community screenings. The film sparks a great conversation. Um, the film is, uh, it's gotten good reviews, I can say that. And uh, it, it, I think it's an exciting film, and, and it's, uh, it never fails to spark a good conversation. I, I would also like to add to sort of expand a little bit on what Effie had to say about uh, people accessing land. Uh, I think in, around the country, the laws and the land situation is, is, is varied. Uh, the people in Occupy the Farm were smart to use a true diversity of tactics. I mean, they not only did they cut the bat padlock off the gate of that farm to save it, they also went to city council meetings and did that sort of very, you know, dreary-seeming se sort of work. But with all the zoning laws, with all the covenants on land, with all the public patchwork of land, uh, water rights, what have you. There's, everybody needs to sort of be interested in this issue if they dig into the issue in their own locality and really find out the specifics. Um, I think windows will open up um, if people are persistent. But uh, we would love to be able to show the film in a, any corner of the country, any, anyone can hear our voices, we, we would love to come to your community and show the film. Uh, so please get in touch with us at Occupy the Farm, film at Gmail. Awesome. Got to get this man a Rise Up account. Um, so one of the things to just know is that San Francisco has been a very powerful uh, urban agriculture context. They're, they passed a really cool rule called AB 151, I think it's called which gave an incentive, a tax incentive, to landowners who make their land available on a five-year basis to urban farmers. Um, so, yes, I think that's an important point to make, is there's a variety of tactics. There's negotiation, there's handshake, there's lease, there's community uh, governance, there's community land trust, there's um, all sorts of uh, relevant ways. One other organization to just mention here is 596 Acres, 596acres.org, which is an organization in Brooklyn that supports communities with land access for urban growing. They have a whole toolkit um, of legal approaches and template uh, language and all the things that you would need 
in order to, having identified a piece of land in your community, take action to get access. So I think we're running, we've run out completely of time, but I want to thank you all for your work and encourage everyone to click here. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Oh,